Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of my hometown, Richmond, Virginia. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Catherine and Brian Harvey met at a chance encounter at the Border Cafe in downtown Richmond. She was working at the cafe when Brian came in with one of his bandmates. Brian was in a pretty well-known local band called House of Freaks, which Rolling Stone actually reported paved the way for bands like the White Stripes and the Black Keys. Their song Rocking Chair actually hit number 11 on the U.S. modern rock charts at one point. Richmond, Virginia has a pretty big indie band scene. In the early 2000s, you couldn't go to the bottom or the canal without running into a few small concerts going on, and the members of those bands were like little celebrities. I used to go to those concerts all the time, and I remember being in awe when I would see the band members out in public. And Brian was no different. He essentially had a line of ladies fawning to be with him, but when he laid his eyes on Catherine, who, according to the Virginia pilot, was crowned homecoming queen and voted most beautiful, something changed. She was the only woman he saw from then on out, and he knew Catherine was going to be the woman he would spend the rest of his life with. And that's exactly what happened. At that point, even though Brian was a local celebrity, he was full of brains. The Richmond Times-Dispatch reports that he had a degree in anthropology and had a knack for computers. As for Catherine, she had $2,500 and a dream. The two married in 1990, and by 1993, Catherine and her friend opened what would become one of the most well-known shops in Carytown, which is a small little village in Richmond known for its bright colors and unique shops and dining. The shop Catherine and her friend owned was actually a toy shop, but not the kind of toys that you would find anywhere else. Their store was called World of Mirth, and everything you found in there was hand-picked. They went for retro toys and unique toys and stuff you literally could not find anywhere else. I'm talking toys that your parents might have played with all the way to wind-up teeth. I actually went to their store regularly throughout my childhood all the way up until last month. Whether you're there to buy something or just looking around, you're definitely having a good time. They even have a fun house mirror with a little stage in front of it so you can take a selfie, which of course I do every time. The bottom line here is that World of Mirth was whimsical and from the time they opened it until today, it has stood the test of time and so did Brian and Catherine's reputation. In a full-page spread of a 1995 issue of the Richmond Times-Dispatch, Catherine was quoted as saying, I'm just into having a place that's funky and accessible, adding, sometimes people come in and don't know what to think of the store at first, but as soon as they see the dangling coconut heads, they have to laugh. Brian stated, a lot of people go into this business to make money. We just kind of do what we want and hopefully we'll enjoy ourselves and have enough money to live and do a little traveling. The couple was known for being down-to-earth and kind-hearted, and they were almost like Richmond's power couple without the glitz and glam. If they saw you, they would strike up a conversation, and they genuinely cared about what you had to say. Between 1996 and 2001, Brian and Catherine started a family. First came Stella, then Ruby. With a family of four, they decided it was time to buy a house, so they settled in one of Richmond's historic neighborhoods. They bought a cute little multi-level brick house built in 1920 in a more suburban part of Richmond, but still in the city. Richmond is a very interesting place. 
You can be in a pretty safe area one second, but if you walk a couple of blocks over, it's the total opposite. Where the Harveys lived was considered extremely safe and a place where people didn't have to lock their doors. The neighborhood was extremely close with one another, and it wasn't unusual for a neighbor to see your door open or your storm door closed and just pop in for a quick hello. There were also regular cookouts in backyards, particularly the Harveys' backyard, because they loved to host. On December 31st, 2005, which was New Year's Eve, Brian's band played a gig downtown. By the time it was over, it was into the early morning hours of January 1st, and Brian knew he needed to get home and get some sleep because the Harvey's annual New Year's Day chili cook-off was going to be happening the next day. The new year was a fresh start for everyone, and it was worth celebrating. No one could have imagined that it would be the start of a string of horrific tragedies that Richmond will never forget. At around 1.45 p.m. on January 1st, 2006, one of Brian's bandmates and his daughter showed up to the Harvey's house to start their annual celebration. But when he opened the door, the Virginia pilot reports that he was met with thick, heavy black smoke. He ran to a neighbor's house to call 911, and firefighters rushed to the scene. If you've ever been to Richmond, you know there's a firehouse on damn near every block, so their response time was pretty immediate. With firefighters on the scene, they rushed into the Harvey house and tried to figure out where the smoke was coming from. This wasn't a fire that was shooting flames out of the roof or windows, but wherever it was coming from, it was clearly ready to erupt at any minute. The closer they got to the basement, which was where the family's living room was located, the thicker the smoke got. It was clear that was where the fire was coming from. As firefighters headed downstairs, they lost all visibility. They couldn't so much as see their hands in front of them, so they started to feel around to see if there were any victims, and they found one. They grabbed the victim and carried her outside into the yard to assess her injuries. After getting who was Catherine out, firefighters found another victim, which was four-year-old Ruby. She, too, was taken out into the lawn as bystanders started gathering on the sidewalk, trying to figure out what was going on. By the time Catherine and Ruby were outside, it was clear that they hadn't survived the fire, but when they took a closer look at both of them, they quickly realized that it wasn't the fire that had killed them. Both Catherine and her daughter had been bound, had sharp force injuries, and blunt force injuries. It was painfully clear that none of this was an accident, it was a crime scene, and the fire department stepped back and called in the police. With the smoke and flames under control, emergency responders located two more bodies in the basement, Brian and nine-year-old Stella. They, too, had been bound and had sharp force and blunt force wounds. Stella had been found hiding under a futon in the basement, which made it painfully clear that even though she had been gravely wounded, she was likely alive when the fire started. Friends and neighbors watched as first responders broke out in tears at the scene. The Harveys had been brutally murdered in their basement that day, but their autopsy showed that it was a kind of brutality beyond any kind of comprehension. 
According to court documents on caselaw.com, Brian's neck had been cut eight times, including one underneath his chin. None of those wounds were fatal, though. He had six lacerations to the side and back of his skull caused by a hammer, and those are the wounds that ultimately killed him. Catherine had three cuts to her neck and chest and one to her back. Like Brian, none of those wounds were fatal. She, too, had multiple lacerations to the back of her skull, which were also caused by a hammer. Those are the wounds that killed her. Both Brian and Catherine's wedding rings had been removed. Reading the reports of nine-year-old Stella and four-year-old Ruby's autopsies made me physically ill, so I'm not going to go into a ton of detail about what happened to them, but the cut wounds to their neck were far more extensive than those of their parents, and they both had open fractures to the backs of their heads. Even though their injuries were horrific, they survived long enough to have to succumb to the fire that had been set to cover up the Harvey's murders. Their causes of death were smoke inhalation, carbon monoxide poisoning, and blunt force trauma to the head. The knives and hammers used in the attacks on the Harvey family were found still in the basement with them. Of all cities in the U.S., an analysis done by 24-7 Wall Street reports that Richmond ranked at number 30 in a list of highest murder rates in the country. But when it comes to murder in Richmond, it's rarely families, and certainly not where the Harveys lived. Sure, there was crime a mile or so over in whichever direction you please, but crime seems to centralize itself into specific areas of the city. This was unlike anything Richmond police had ever seen, and it wasn't going to stop there. Six days after the Harveys were brutally murdered in their home, Richmond police told the show Family Massacre that a woman named LaToya had called 911 to report that her friend Ashley wasn't responding to her attempts to contact her. LaToya hadn't called non-emergency, she had called 911 because according to her, Ashley Baskerville had been hanging out with two guys who she thought were pretty dangerous. With that, RPD went to Ashley's parents' house where she had been visiting, which was just about a mile away from the Harveys. They knocked on the door but got no answer, and with the extenuating circumstances of what they felt was a viable threat to Ashley's safety, they breached the door and walked into another family massacred. In the front room, they found Ashley's stepfather, Perciel Tucker, laying on the floor. He had a sock in his mouth with duct tape covering it, and his head had been covered in saran wrap. He died from suffocation. As the police department moved through the rest of the house, they found Ashley's mom, Mary Tucker, in the master bedroom. She, too, had been gagged, and duct tape had been placed over her eyes. She had been cut four times in the neck and chest, but none of those cuts had been fatal. Her cause of death was listed as suffocation. The last victim found in Ashley's parents' home was Ashley. Court documents report that she also had a sock stuffed into her mouth and duct tape wrapped around her entire head. A shopping bag had then been placed over her head, which was then duct taped to her neck. She, like her mother and stepfather, had died of suffocation, a slow and agonizing death where each of them likely would have struggled for minutes. Richmond police were at a total and complete loss at this point. Like we mentioned earlier, murder in Richmond rarely involves entire families, and in the first week of 2006, they had seven victims who had been brutally murdered across two different families. 
Everyone had to wonder if they were connected, and some were concerned that there was a serial killer on the loose targeting families. It wasn't until Ashley's autopsy was finishing up and her jewelry was being collected to give back to her family that police got their answer. The show Family Massacre reports that two rings found on Ashley, one on her finger and one hanging from a chain around her neck, belonged to Catherine and Brian Harvey. One of their victims was somehow connected to the Harvey murders, but she was dead and so was her family. So what in the actual fuck was going on? Ashley's friend Latoya had a guess. As it turns out, while Ashley had been previously serving a prison sentence, she struck up a pen pal relationship with a man named Ray Dandridge. Ray Dandridge happened to be the same age as his uncle, Ricky Javon Gray, whom he had spent most of his life with. The two had always been inseparable, and when both of them were out of prison in 2005, they wasted no time reuniting. According to LaToya, those were the men that Ashley had been hanging out with prior to her death. Police were one step closer to figuring out how Ashley wound up murdered while wearing the Harvey's stolen jewelry. With two new names to go on, Ricky and Ray, they started digging. Before they could get very far, they got a call from the Chesterfield Police Department. Chesterfield is the neighboring county just south of Richmond. They had gotten a call about a home invasion in Chesterfield that had them wondering if maybe it was committed by the same perpetrators as the Harvey Baskerville Tucker murders. Ashley's family was the Baskerville Tuckers. On January 3rd, three days after the Harvey murders and three days prior to the Baskerville Tucker murders, an elderly couple had been going about their day when two African-American males and an African-American female broke into their home with the intent of robbing it. For whatever reason, the three intruders did not kill the elderly couple and fled after stealing a pretty small amount of property. According to the show Wicked Attraction, Evil in the Blood, the elderly couple was able to identify Ashley as one of the intruders. Ashley had been a part of whatever Ricky and Ray were doing and for whatever reason had wound up a victim herself. With the suspicion that police were on the right track with Ricky and Ray, they had LaToya call Ray and strike up a conversation. It served two purposes. They planned to trace the phone call to wherever Ricky and Ray had run off to, and they wanted to hear what he had to say. Whatever he said was enough to solidify that he and Ricky were likely involved, and the call placed them all the way up in Pennsylvania. Someone, i.e. Ricky and Ray, had stolen the Tucker family's vehicle, so Richmond police contacted police in Philadelphia and asked for help tracking it down. Now, you might think because Philly is massive, it might be hard to locate that kind of needle in a cornfield, but Philly police were not fucking around. According to Family Massacre, Philly PD was able to locate the stolen vehicle within 20 whole minutes. It was parked near none other than Ray's father's house. If you thought swap-flavored hellfire was about to rain down on that house, you would be correct. Ray tried to run like the little bitch he was, and according to the Virginia pilot, Ricky turtled himself under a water heater, wielding none other than a power drill. On some planet, he felt like that was a solid plan, but he was just an asshole like a sadistic sidekick, and the two were taken into custody. This was such a monumental arrest that RPD told Family Massacre that the homicide department literally screamed when they got the news. 
With both garbage humans now in custody, Ray decided that he wanted to sing like a bird and without hesitation admitted to killing the Baskerville Tuckers. According to court documents, when Ricky found out that Ray was talking, he asked police if he could tell his side of the story. And I can't fathom why he decided to talk because nothing he said helped him in any way. But because he did, police got every single answer they needed to nail these guys to the wall. And they also got details about the crimes that would haunt Richmond forever. In Ricky's signed confession, he wrote that at 9 a.m. on New Year's Day, Ashley drove him and Ray around looking for a house to rob. They picked the Harveys because the main door was open and only the storm door was closed. Ashley parked her van down the street while Ricky and Ray made their way to the Harveys' porch and entered the house. According to Family Massacre, Brian was drinking his coffee, Catherine was cutting up vegetables for their celebration later that day, and four-year-old Ruby was sitting on the floor doing a puzzle. Stella had stayed the night with a friend for a New Year's sleepover the night before, so she wasn't home yet. Ricky and Ray promised the family that as long as they cooperated, no one would get hurt. Ricky led the Harveys down into the basement where he bound Brian with duct tape and electrical cords. While Ray was upstairs, he noticed that a woman and two kids were coming up to the front door. He let Ricky know what was going on and told Catherine that she needed to deal with it. Different reports say different things, but the gist is that she was told if she tipped anyone off, Ricky would hurt both Brian and four-year-old Ruby who were still downstairs. It was an impossible situation for any mother to be in, and at that point, Ricky and Ray were holding up their end of the bargain, that cooperating would result in no one getting hurt. Catherine went to the door and was met with her friend, her friend's daughter, and Stella, who had stayed the night with them, for their New Year's sleepover. Stella ran inside and down into the basement where the family always hung out, having no idea that a nightmare was currently unfolding. According to the Richmond Times-Dispatch, Catherine's friend remembers her being pale and seeming nervous. When the friend's daughter tried running into the house after Stella, Catherine blocked her from coming inside. When the friend asked Catherine if she was okay, Catherine told her that she just wasn't feeling well and made a finger gun and circled it beside her head, like someone would to signal that something or someone was crazy. Her friend told the Richmond Times-Dispatch that looking back, she doesn't know if Catherine was trying to give her a sign, but at the time, she just attributed everything to being stressed. However, without any doubt, Catherine saved her friend's daughter's life that day. There is no question. When Catherine's friend left, she returned to the basement where Brian, four-year-old Ruby, and nine-year-old Stella were. Once there, Ricky and Ray bound the rest of the family and put clear packing tape over their mouths. The Virginia pilot reports that Stella and Ruby were terrified, and Catherine tried her best to comfort them, even though she, too, was bound and taped. The thing I want to point out here is that the only people who survived what happened at the Harvey house that day was Ricky and Ray, so that detail could have only come from one of their confessions. Catherine tried her best to get Ricky and Ray to leave, telling them that they could take anything they wanted, but Ricky didn't let that happen. 
He slashed Catherine's throat, then did the same to the girls, and then Brian, who had to watch all of this unfold in front of him, unable to do anything to help because he was bound. None of those wounds, no matter how horrific they were, and they were horrific, killed any of the Harveys. So he grabbed a hammer and assaulted every single one of them with it. According to the Virginia pilot, Ricky told police that he didn't know who he hit first, but quote unquote, nobody was moving when he left. He then proceeded to pour two bottles of wine onto an easel in the basement and lit it on fire. Before leaving the house, Ricky and Ray stole the rings off of Brian and Catherine's fingers, a laptop from upstairs, a few other items, and a fucking plate of cookies. And I've never wanted someone to choke on something more in my entire life. Court documents state that after SWAT stormed Ray's father's house, they found the cookie plate, the laptop stolen from the Harvey's home, and a pair of Ricky's boots that had both Brian and Stella's blood on them. When it comes to the murder of the Baskerville Tuckers, the Virginia pilot reports that it was Ashley's idea to rob her parents. Family Massacre reports that she gave Ricky and Ray the keys, and the plan was to tie Ashley up as well so the burglary would look more real. However, they didn't want to split their share of their murderous burglarous bullshit with her, so instead of untying her, they killed her parents first, told her to say goodbye to her mother, and then they killed her as well, leaving the Harvey jewelry on her body. Ricky was ultimately charged with five counts of capital murder and Ray was charged with three counts of capital murder. Ricky being charged with the Harvey family murders and Ray being charged with the Baskerville Tucker murders, which in Virginia means you're hightailing it towards the death penalty. And you might think all of that would sum up the horrific crimes they committed in the span of a week, but you would be wrong. During Ricky's confession about the Harvey Baskerville Tucker murders, court documents state that he also confessed to the murder of his late wife, Treva, implicating both him and Ray in the crime. According to the Richmond Times-Dispatch, Treva had been Ricky's prison pen pal. When he got released in 2002, he headed up to Pennsylvania to live with her and her mother. However, as you can imagine, their relationship was nothing like she had hoped it would be. The Ricky outside of prison walls was a much different person and Treva wanted more for herself and her child. So on November 1st, 2005, just two months before the Harveys were murdered and only 11 days after Ray had been released from prison and joined Ricky in Pennsylvania, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette reports that Treva told her mom that she was going to ask Ricky for a divorce. She left her mom's house to go break the news to him and was never seen alive again. Five days after leaving her mom's house, Treva's body was found in a desolate area near a used car lot. I've seen reports that she was found in a gravel parking lot and other reports saying she was found under a tree, but nonetheless, they all come back to being outside of that used car lot. Initially, reports stated that there was no sign of trauma to her body, and her mom told the Richmond Times-Dispatch that police attributed her death to being an overdose, which seems like it was just an assumption at the time because toxicology takes a hot minute, and frankly, well, we'll get to that part in a second. Treva's mom told the paper that she didn't believe for a second that her daughter had died of an overdose because it didn't make any sense. What did she do, walk over to the middle of nothing, OD, and then put twigs and leaves on her face? 
absolutely not. Especially considering what we know now. Eventually, the media coverage surrounding her death started to evolve, saying that she may have been strangled or suffocated. They evolved again after the Harvey murders, when the Richmond Times-Dispatch reported that a search warrant had been signed for the home that Ricky and Trevor shared, and they were looking for plastic bags, samples, and metal pipes. In Ricky's extended confession, he admitted to killing Treva with the help of Ray by bludgeoning her with a lead pipe. Ricky had been questioned about his wife's death shortly after they found her body, but police didn't have enough to charge him with anything. Both he and Ricky fled the area shortly thereafter. Had either of them been charged, there's a good chance that the Harveys and the Baskerville Tuckers might still be alive. But that's not the only crime the duo committed before killing the Harveys. According to the Virginia pilot, on New Year's Eve, while Brian was out playing his gig in Richmond, a man named Ryan in Northern Virginia was walking from his car to his parents' front door when he was attacked by two men. They punched him in the face before he could give them his wallet and car keys and then proceeded to stab him multiple times with two different knives. The attack on Ryan was so vicious that one of the knives actually broke inside of him, but Ryan survived. He spent two weeks in a coma and has lost the ability to use his right arm, but he survived the terror of Ricky and Ray. They were both charged with the attack on him, but to this day, no one has ever been charged with the murder of Treva despite Ricky's confession. Maybe they felt like justice was ultimately going to be served with or without those charges, but frankly, Treva and her family deserve their own justice. Ray ultimately took a plea to avoid the death penalty and was sentenced to life in prison. He and Ricky both got 25 years for the attack on Ryan. Despite Ricky's horrifyingly detailed confession of what he did to the Harveys, he went to trial and it went wonderfully horrible for him. He was convicted on all counts of capital murder. For the Harvey adults, he was sentenced to one life sentence each, but for each of the Harvey children, he was sentenced to death. Following Ricky's death sentence, the attempt to spare his life, unlike the lives of the now eight people he was involved in killing, was in full force. A clemency campaign was launched, citing Ricky's tragic childhood, which was in no certain terms absolutely tragic. The Virginia pilot reports that he was heinously abused by his father and sexually abused by his half-brother. When it comes to the abuse from his father, the outlet reports that a belt was used that had Ricky's own name on it. The sexual abuse reportedly committed by his half-brother resulted in Ricky recoiling from certain smells related to the items used in the assaults. There was also an argument that the medicine used in Virginia's lethal injection was unconstitutional. Before his execution date and awaiting the response of the governor of Virginia, CNN reports that Ricky issued a public apology saying, I'm sorry they had to be a victim of my despair, adding, remorse is not a deep enough word for how I feel. I know my words can't bring anything back, but I continuously feel horrible for the circumstances that I put them through. I robbed them of a lifelong supply of joy. Regardless of the many attempts to try and spare Ricky's life, the governor didn't intervene with his execution, and at 9.32 p.m. on January 18, 2017, 11 years after his reign of terror began, Ricky Javon Gray was pronounced dead. When asked if he had any last words, CNN reported that he simply said, nope. 
Ricky and Ray terrorized Pennsylvania and Virginia for two months, leaving at least 11 victims in their wake, only three of which survived. Just so we don't forget their names, their victims were Brian Harvey, Catherine Harvey, Stella Harvey, Ruby Harvey, Perciel Tucker, Mary Tucker, Treva Gray, and Ashley Baskerville. Their surviving victims are a man named Ryan out of Northern Virginia and an elderly couple in Chesterfield. I also feel like we should mention a woman named Cheryl Warner of Culpeper, Virginia, who on December 18th of 2005, just a month after Treva was killed and two weeks before the Harveys were killed, answered the door for a man who claimed he was having car trouble. According to the Daily Progress, she was on the phone with her dad at the time, who indicated that it didn't sound like the man with the car trouble was alone when he asked to use her phone. Forgotten Victims reports that it was only 30 minutes later that firefighters were called to her home. The basement was on fire and Cheryl was found with a gunshot wound to her head. She was hanging by an extension cord in her basement. A grand jury actually indicted Ricky for Cheryl's murder in 2006, but in 2008, those charges were dropped after some kind of DNA sample, and I don't know what, wound up not being a match to Ricky. Her case is still currently listed as unsolved. To this day, Richmond has not forgotten about the Harveys or the Tuckers, and they never will. In 2006, the Harveys were named Richmonders of the Year, and in 2010, a bridge was dedicated to the family in Forest Hill Park. A 4,000-pound granite marker marks the dedication with a bronze portrait of the family and the note on behalf of all of the families of Richmond, Virginia. If you have any information regarding the murder of Cheryl Warner, please contact investigators at 540-829-9750. You can also call Culpeper Crime Stoppers at 540-727-0300 or email flucas at culpepercounty.gov. There's also a specific email address set up for Cheryl's case, which is tips4warner at gmail.com. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out the Harvey's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley and join me on TikTok on Thursdays at the Heather Ashley at 8.30 p.m. Eastern where we go live and we talk about this week's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. To get access to ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Apple Premium or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you love the podcast, feel free to leave a review. And if you have a case you'd like to hear covered, share it with Big Mad True Crime on social media because all cases are covered by listener request. I'll be bringing you a brand new case next week, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. Since we're at the end of the episode, I wanted to talk about a positive review because it really makes my day every time you leave one. So this is one left by Elena Rachel 26. And I want to thank you because you're amazing. It's called Highlight of My Day. Heather is amazing. She tells each story respectively, objectively, gets me every time with her one-liners, and she never fails to show appreciation for her fan base. She will forever be one of my favorite podcasters. Thank you, Heather, for doing the podcast right. 
Elena, I love you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to just do something nice and make my day. I appreciate you. I love you all. And I will be talking to you all next week.